Welcome to the Gottesdienst crowd, where we foster confessional integrity, liturgical preservation, and preaching that doesn't stink. We believe that the historic liturgy of the divine service is more than mere cobwebs of antiquity, but it is a true treasure of the Church to be dusted off and brought down from her attic to be enjoyed. So let's get dusting. What we talked about last time was looking, moving from just sheer pain, discomfort, uh, things that make us uncomfortable and are unpleasant, the things that we avoid, uh, to recognizing that God has a purpose for those things, that they're not accidental, uh, but that there is a reason for them. We talked about how sloth takes shape in our lives and how we typically deal with it, that we deal with pain and difficulty and discomfort in mind, body, and soul by distraction or indifference. And that despite of the greatness of the difficulty endured, the greatness of what it produces far exceeds what we actually endure. And so we have to let this difficulty do the work of revealing of where we're at right at that point in time. We have to let the crises bring to the forefront the character that is already there. So the question that I want to deal with in this session, uh, moving from sorrow to strength, is if this is what God has in store, if it's on purpose, why does it still have to be so difficult? In other words, if God has given us the, the answer in Christ, if he's given us the ultimate thing, why should I seek to do anything else? It's a, if he has given us the full answer for all eternity, what is left to do now? And why does it still have to be so difficult? As I mentioned early, rarely is our choice between what is good and right and what is evil, at least initially. More often than not, it is the case that we must choose between what is good and what is right and what is easy. And so we need to learn from Shasta, from C.S. Lewis's The Horse and His Boy. So in the story, I'm just going to recap the story just briefly for you. In the story, Shasta and his friends have just traveled across the sweltering desert with little food, water, or rest. Their mission is to warn King Loon of Arkenland of the imminent attack of Rabidash and his 200 Calarmine horsemen. After barely making it to the river in the gorge and collapsing in exhaustion, the four messengers, that is Shasta, Erevis, Bree, and Huynh, they arise and discover that Rabidash is closer than they thought. And they find themselves in a race to King Loon. In the midst of their gallop, a lion, a lion gives a snarling roar and begins to chase them. And it sounds like it's an entire pride of lions. Compounding their already difficult task with the fear of being eaten. As they are being chased, Shasta thinks to himself, it is not fair. I did not, I, I did think we'd be safe from lions here. So the lion closes in on Huynh and Erevis and Shasta in a moment of, and Shasta in a moment of instinct bravery, jumps off of Bree and runs weaponless at the lion, screaming, go home, go home. Surprisingly, his words have the desired effect and the lion abandons his chase after wounding Erevis. Shasta turns and races to the gate of the Hermit of the Southern March, where the horses and Erevis have collapsed in a heap of exhaustion. 
the hermit helps the wounded Erevis down from her horse and then says to Shasta, And now, my son, waste no time on questions, but obey. This damsel is wounded. Your horses are spent. Rabidash is at this moment finding a ford over the winding arrow. If you run now, without a moment's rest, you will still be in time to warn King Loon. Shasta's reaction is the same as any of ours would be. Shasta's heart fainted at these words, for he felt he had no strength left. And he writhed inside at what seemed the cruelty un and unfairness of the demand. And here's the clincher, for he had not yet learned that if you do one good deed, your reward usually is to be set to do another and harder and a better one. Nevertheless, he asks for directions to King Loon and then sets off running as fast as he can. And it is in this way that he learned the painful lesson that the reward for obedience is to be given a new, harder, but better task. So in other words, Shasta was promoted. So, so often when difficult things come into our lives, we think that God hates us. We think that God is punishing us for some failure before. And what I would like you guys to come away with is not to go into that painful loop of God hates me, God's punishing me, why is it so hard, can't I catch a break, all of those thoughts and even spoken words that we say out loud. I'd rather you begin to think that you are being rewarded for one good deed with another more difficult and a better one. I would rather you begin to reframe the difficulties, obstacles, painful things in your life, not as something that God is punishing you with, but that God is rewarding you with, that he's promoting you. It is still so difficult. There is still so much discomfort. There is pain and suffering and strife from within and from outside of us because we've been promoted. When the unclean spirit, Jesus says, has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. The point that I wanted to make with this is that when God cleanses you, he is not just saving you from sin, death, and the power of the devil. He is also marking you as one that belongs to him. And that mark indicates that you do not belong to the devil. And the devil wants you. You've been promoted. Of course, there's going to be more work to do. What did you expect? What does not kill us, Nietzsche said, I know I'm quoting Nietzsche, uh, makes us stronger. Muscles grow under resistance, time under tension. You need to reframe how you look at it. You need to look with God's eyes, which he has actually revealed to us in the scripture and not just how you feel at that time and at that moment. 
This is not to say that there isn't time for rest, so long as you understand that rest has a time and work has a time. Right? Rest is not a distraction from difficulty, although it can be. We do sleep, as Job did, when we don't want to deal with what's right in front of us. But that's not rest. That's distraction. We're distracting ourselves or we're becoming indifferent towards those things by going to sleep. But we do it under the guise of, well, rest is good. So you need to reframe how you look at it. Uh, I'm on a Bible reading plan that reads through Acts once a month. And this has been a great joy to read through this once a month. And I am constantly astounded. I mean, absolutely blown away by what St. Paul goes through in his missionary journeys. Every town he comes to, he is confronted with people who hate him, who seek to stone him and whip him, put him in prison. And when he gets out, what does he do? He goes to the next town and he does the same thing. And then you read in 2 Corinthians his litany, right? It's his, it's his litany of what I've been through. Like, this is why I'm a better apostle, <laughs> you know, when Paul is bragging. I've been a fool, he says. You forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with faith, with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in, for in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches, except that I myself did not burden you? Forgive me this wrong. Here for the third time, I am ready to come to you, and I will not burden you. And then he goes on. He goes on and lists everything that he went through beatings and lashings and imprisonments and shipwrecks, all of these things. And if you were to line up 2 Corinthians and all the things he lists there with the second half of Acts, there are things in 2 Corinthians that are not recorded in Acts. He went through more than what's even recorded. And this is how he summarizes it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Verse 10. For the sake of Christ, then, I delight with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. The word delight here is often translated as content. Sadly, in our day, we hear contentment as settling for things. Contentment biblically is delighting in what you actually have. Not wanting what someone else has, not pining for this something thing over here because I've been given this lot here. But it's a delight in what is actually in front of you. You've been promoted. Do you delight in it? Are you content to be where God has put you? Not that you don't work hard in those things, but do you delight in that mere fact of where God has put you to be? Do you like, delight that he's put you in this house with these people, that he surrounded you by these Christians, not wishing that you were in that one over there? Do you delight that you've been given this pastor with all of his foibles? And I know that, I know I have all of my own, 
Do you delight in that? Do you delight in the difficulties in which God is showing you what needs to be worked on? Not just within you, but from all around you. That you see it as an opportunity to grow and get stronger, not only physically, not only mentally, but also spiritually. Do you delight in being shown how weak you are? Because when you are weak, then you are strong. Because God is making you stronger. Jesus delighted in his task. Though he asked it to be set aside if it were his father's will, nevertheless, it was his duty. It was his joy to accomplish. He set his face resolutely to Jerusalem, Luke tells us, after the transfiguration. So the author to Hebrews, St. Paul, bids us to set our eyes on the one who set his face to Jerusalem. Looking to Jesus, the founder, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. With these difficulties, you've been promoted to be like him. Do you see that? Do you recognize that God is conforming you to the image of his son? That he sees so much in you that he wants you to look like Jesus? Well, that changes the picture, doesn't it? That reframes the difficulty a little bit better. That God is not punishing you. He's treating you like Jesus. He's treating you as a son, a member of his family. God has not just wrought this salvation for us in Christ. He's not just given it to us only for a future eternal reality. He's done that. But that is not the sum total of his work. He's still active even now. Still active even now. He is promoting us. He sees something in us. He's training us. Training us for the prize. that we would seek and run after it. That we would submit ourselves to his holy will and trust that the benefits that he would give, he will give. He's building us up to have the kind of frame that is the kind of build, the kind of stature and structure that can bear up under an eternal weight of glory. So in a way, he is building us up and into the kind of people, despite our feeble beginnings, despite our fits, and our starts, it's despite our weaknesses, failures, and sins along the way. He's building us up in the kind of people who at the end are actually worthy of it. He's conforming us to his 
son. Not that we have earned it, but that we are worthy of it. And so he is setting before our sights to have a new kind of ambition. That we would be ambitious to be the kind of people who want to be worthy of it. Who do not shrink back from the difficulty because it is difficult. Who do not shrink back from being uncomfortable because it is uncomfortable. But that we would desire as our brother Jesus Christ desired to accomplish what he was set to accomplish. That we would love the glory that comes from God more than the glory that comes from man. So how do we go about doing that? Again, we need to think about how we view the things right in front of us. Where God has actually put you. Consider your place in life. What has God called you to do? There are lots of things that we can work toward that actually are for our glory. But do not glorify God. And these are all the things that we love to do because we receive the instantaneous prize right then and there. So we enjoy going to work because we get a prize. Either it is acclaim or money or whatever that case is. But the things that have a prize that gives us more to do, we set aside. God is calling us to do those things and to concentrate on those things that don't have an immediate positive reward because they are better. They are better. We want to be the kind of people who have the ambition to be worthy of what God in Christ Jesus has given us. We want to be that kind of people. And so we set out, we set out to do what he has commanded us. We set out to do what he has given us to do. What happened when Shasta heard that he had more to do? He fainted from weariness. It's not fair. It shouldn't be this hard. I didn't think I'd have to contend with lions. I didn't think that this would go wrong. Or that would go wrong. But in the end, when you are given a task, the task was go to King Lu. You get there by any means that you can get there. And if that means running after you're exhausted, you run. If that means continually training, then you continually train. If that means that you need a rest here, then you take the rest. Not to distract yourself from those things, because you're doing what God desires. You need that rest. But rest is not always sleep. What do we do every Sunday? What is this called when we gather on Sunday around the word and the sacrament? It is our Sabbath rest. 
This is where God continues to fill you up and give you strength. By his word and encouragement. Pointing out where you have failed. Telling you of what he has already accomplished. And giving you directions on what is next. There is always a next. That will not end until we are taken from this veil of tears to himself in heaven. But that difficulty, as I've said time and time again now, that difficulty has a purpose. That difficulty's purpose is to strengthen. Just like lifting weights, just like doing any other kind of exertion gives you strength. Just like practicing a particular activity, you get better, stronger at it. God is giving you the kind of frame and build that you can endure whatever comes your way through these So that at the end, you are actually, you have run that race. You have boxed, not at the air, but training and disciplining your bodies. That you have done these things. He is not a God far off. Am I not also a God at hand? Is he still not active in his creation? Is he still not doing these things here and now? He is with us always until the end of the age. And these difficulties, these things that we endure, the uncomfortable, the unpleasant, they're building us up to receive that eternal weight of glory. So there is an end to them, but not yet. There is a time when he will say, well done, you've accomplished everything, but not yet. There is still work for you to do. That work, though, that work changes as we go throughout. It looks different. We all know this. Because when we're children, obeying our father and mother looks different than when we are adults. Honoring them looks different than when we are adults. Disciplining your children as young children, looks different than when they are adults. Those changes happen. When those changes happen, do you think, I just wish it were back then? That was easier. Or, When we look at our world and things look crazy, do we think, I just wish it were back then? When we look at the state of the church and there are more pews empty than full, do we think, I just wish it were back then? When those difficulties come and you begin to think in that manner, you've already given up. You want to distract yourself by the better time, the easier time, by nostalgia. Instead, of looking at the time that God has actually put you in. Right here, right now, 
with these people. And remembering that God has promoted you. He has put you here for a reason. And it's not just for your own good that you're going through these difficulties, but he has put you here because he has something for you to do in the midst of those difficulties. Do not be surprised when fiery trials come upon you, Peter says. For such it is among all the elect. Don't be surprised when these things happen. Be excited. Delight in them. As St. Paul delighted in his sufferings, his weakness, his beatings, his chains. We can delight in them. We can look forward to them because we know what our God does with weakness, sufferings, and chains. He bursts prisons. He rises from the dead. He gives new life. When difficult things happen, our default response should not be, why me? Why now? It's not fair. Our default response should be that we need to teach ourselves is I can't wait to see what God is going to do with this. I am going to delight in this. I'm going to resolutely set my face toward this. I am going to, for the joy set before me, endure this with patience and trust. Is that your response? Is that your response that when something goes wrong, you are excited to see what God is going to do? One thing that you can do to teach yourself this is create a file folder that says miracle. My father-in-law said, Jason, when I first got married, Jason, create a miracle file. This file is, as he described it, this is the file that I keep when I don't know how I'm going to pay this bill and then suddenly it gets paid because the money has come in. This file is, I don't know how I'm going to deal with this and then the solution is presented and it came out of nowhere, seemingly. This file is filled with all the questions and the doubts that you have and all the real answers in real time that God has actually given you. So that the next time something difficult and uncomfortable and unpleasant come along, not only do you have the record of scripture, but you have examples in real time of your real life of God, how of how God provided. I know it sounds corny. I thought it was corny too when my father-in-law told me to do it. But thankfully, I listened to him. And I have a miracle file. And in it is filled with all the things that God has provided throughout time. When I was at my wit's end, when I didn't know what happen. Some of those things in the miracle file are people in this room, like Gilbert or Ramirez, when God sends them 
to wake us up from our slumbers. Some of them are people I have never met who sent funds when I was in the seminary and it was, well, am I going to give to church or am I going to, am I going to fix the car? I'm going to give to church. And suddenly I had just enough to fix the car. I'm sure you all, if people have a miracle file, your faces are in theirs. Who are the faces in yours? What are those difficulties that have been answered by God in real time, not just for some future eternal bliss in heaven, but right here and now? And will you, the next time it happens, dare to open up that file and think, I'm excited to see what God's going to do. I delight in the weaknesses and the trials. Because not only is he active now to help us, the trial, the tribulation, the difficulty is also building us up giving us a musculature that is worthy to bear up under the eternal weight of glory. I'm going to pause there. I want to take and field some questions because I think this part is probably the one that would get the most questions. But I want to go to Pastor Gilbert first to see if I actually answered what you were thinking about because I said I would. I remember. I know what I was touching on more was when God, God gives us a great amount of freedom. Yes. And if there's not a specific vocational responsibility before us. You don't have to do it. Right. But if it is a vocational responsibility and it is something that you don't want to do, how do we find that with Christ's prayer? Yeah. Well, I mean, on the one hand, we can ask God to take it away. Right? So, we can ask him to fix it outside of us if it's his will. Um, but I think we get our answer. Jesus still goes to the cross, right? So we can ask him, but we don't wait then for the answer from somewhere else. Does that make sense? Because we know what Jesus did. He didn't wait for someone to step in. He kept going because he didn't hear anyone say, Oh yeah, you're right. I'm going to take this from you and do something else. And so until you hear, I'm not asking you to hear voices, but until you have a specific command from God that is irrefutably a command from God not to do this because he's going to do it some other way, it remains your responsibility. And on top of that, I would just fill in this bit too. It was not Jesus's fault that he went to the cross, right? He didn't do anything to deserve it. There are lots of things in our lives that are not our fault. Some of which are things that we're experiencing this day in our culture. But that does not alleviate us of responsibility. Just because it's not our fault doesn't mean that we don't have a responsibility to do something to correct it. So don't play the fault game that begins to say, I didn't get us in this situation, so I have no agency to try to get us out. As a father, it's not my fault that a burglar comes in. It sure as heck is my responsibility to ensure 
that he doesn't do damage that he shouldn't do to my wife and kids. It's not my fault, but it is my responsibility. And this is the thing that we saw in Jesus. It's not his fault, but this is the task given to him. It is what we see in the apostles, in particular, St. Paul. The things that he endured were not his fault, but he was given agency. He was given a responsibility. And we should delight in that. Too often, too often, we assume that God hasn't given us agency, the ability to do something about something in our lives. And we apply it to a place that he has actually given us some ability to do something. And then we do the reverse as well. We apply the ability to do something in a place that God has not given us to do something about. We need to make sure, like primarily with regard to our salvation, right? We often end up trying to work and please God in a way that he would not be wrathful with us. Well, he's not wrathful towards us because of his son. We don't have any agency there. But he has given us agency elsewhere, the ability to be active and doing things. And we should seek those opportunities where he has actually given us some agency to do stuff. We all have agency to talk around our dining room tables. Can we, do we have any agency over what happens in Madison? Not much. Do we have any agency what happens in Chicago? For sure, not Chicago, right? I'm downstate Illinois, and Chicago's a bad word, um, even though I kind of grew up in the suburbs. Do we have any agency in what happens in D.C.? Not much. But we spend a whole inordinate amount of time trying to fix what we have not been given agency to fix. We do have agency in our dining room table. We do have agency in our voters' assemblies. We do have agency in our living rooms and in our congregations and in the homes of our members. We have that kind of agency. And yet we toil in the place where we have none. And we forget about the place that we have the most. And this is what. Uh, you know, this is what our Lord wants us to do. He wants us to see, okay, we've got difficulty, but are we concentrating on this, this other difficulty because that's easier because we don't have to do anything about it because we know we can't. Instead of looking at the difficulty that we actually can do something about. And that's what St. Paul did. He delighted in those things. There were places that he couldn't do anything. It was all God's worth, work, right? I planted, polished water. God gave the growth. He didn't stop planting. He didn't stop planting. I want to continue to talk about having the kind of ambition, the right kind of ambition. Again, we're moving from sorrow to strength. So we're moving from being just sad about these things. We're moving from uh, wallowing in what we think is awful and bad. And just like letting that uh, toxic mix of fumes put us to sleep and make us slumber and weigh us down. We're moving from having sorrow to strength. And we want to recognize that the things that God has put in our, seemingly put in our way, are not things that are in our way, but they're the very things that he wants us to concentrate on. Remember I said, quoting C.S. Lewis, 
that pain is a universal language. And it is God's megaphone to rouse a slumbering world. To wake them up. The difficulties in our life are calling and crying out to us to focus on me. For a reason. Not, and it's the things that are actually in our life. The things that we need to focus on. The things that God has called us to vocationally. Are you ambitious for those things? Are you ambitious to go after those things to see if you have the muster against it? It's a challenge. You're promoted. It's the, do I have what it takes? When I was in high school, the military, particularly the Marines, changed their tactic in advertising. Um, military service was on the decline, except for the Marines. The Marines grew because they said, we're looking for a few good men. Are you one of them? Do you have what it takes? Now, here's the thing. Typically, we don't rise to the occasion. Typically, we sink to our lowest level of training. This is why in sports, you cover fundamentals all the time. I don't know how many times in coaching baseball I said, would say, get down, put your glove on the ground, ready position. And it just has to be over and over and over and over again. And we would just practice that. You'd get a guy on the mound who isn't actually, actually pitching and he gets ready in his windup and you teach them that's when you get ready. You get in position. I never played football, but I'm sure there are similar things there, that there's a certain position. There are fundamentals. And if you don't know those fundamentals, you will always be falling to your lowest level of training, which is you will get run over in football. Where the ball will go through your legs, one of the most embarrassing things to ever happen to any baseball player ever. Also for the kid's father, right? I don't know how many times it'd be like, oh. they also find this in chess. We tend to think that chess players, really good chess players, that really good chess players have a really great imagination. But they put a really great master chess player against a beginner. I mean, they knew, their, they knew the rules, uh, but they weren't, you know, intermediate level. And they measured their brain function. You know, they put those suction cups on their head to measure what part of their brain was working. And this is really fascinating to me. For the brand new player, the beginner, the part of his brain that was functioning most was the place of imagination. The place where you're coming up with ideas. The place that was measured for the master chess player was the section of his brain on memory on history, on past moves. He had a level of training that he could go and say, I see this move and I know from past experience all the possibilities. And he was going through that 
Rolodex of what those things are. But the new player is trying to come up with it. I bring all of this up about training because how are you training yourself when these things happen? I bring this up about having a folder of miracles because that's the way that you remember and go through the Rolodex of past moves. You have to train yourself that when difficulty comes, it's not bad, it's not unfair, it just is. And this is what God has put before me, and thanks be to God, he has put it before me. To delight in it, Am I a few, one of those few good men? Do I have what it takes? Can I be the person that I think I am in my mind? Can I do it? And again, you need some people around you. You know, the beginning of Hebrews chapter 12 that I, I had already read about, for the joy put before Jesus, he endured the cross. That first verse is that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. The previous chapter is all about those who by faith did all of these wonderful, amazing things. That is, they believed in the promises of God more than anything else. And they did what God commanded them to do. Are you constantly training yourself to do that? So that when the bad thing happens, the discomfort comes, your reaction is not, poor me, the sky is falling, everything is bad. But rather you have so trained yourself, you have so trained yourself that you look forward to what God is going to do. And that's what we're going to talk about in our next session, all of the training. What is your um, pastoral response for that self-subtle of it's not fair, it's not Yeah. So the question was, when, uh, when pastorally people come to me and they're kind of complaining about their current circumstances. I, typically, it's the, what did you respect, expect? Right? What did you expect? Did you think this was going to be easy? Uh, I mean, on the one hand, you know, I understand things are difficult. I mean, I'm not a total jerk. Uh, just the kind of one. But I don't want to give in to people thinking like, yes, it is so hard, it's so hard, it's so hard, and get into that mental loop of it's just hard. And all they can think about is how hard it is instead of how good it is. That's how I, I want them to reframe the thing. Like, it's not just hard. Yeah, I get it's hard. What did you expect? He said it was a narrow door. He said it was a difficult path. He said it's not easy to enter. What did you expect? So usually it's, uh, I ask the question, what did you expect? And I want, I want to know what they were expecting. Now I've been there long enough now that when the question comes, they know what I'm looking for. So uh, as soon as I ask it, they're like, I know. Um, but what I really want them to do is I, I'm glad they come and they still go through the process because sometimes just the pastor saying, what did you expect? And then talking about those things, what were their expectations? Was that a proper expectation according to what's been revealed in God's word? What does God actually say he's going to promise to do through these things? 
um, just going through those things, that's part of the training. So if you're going to complain, right, if you're going to lament, the Bible laments, which is in the Psalms, uh, and I don't know the numbers off the top of my head. Um, Richard, do you, do you know all the Psalms of lament? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so I don't know all the numbers, but uh, you could do a pretty easy Google search, say Psalms of Lament, and it will give you all the numbers. Um, but if you read through, through those Psalms, right? Um, if you read through those Psalms, there's complaint, but it always ends with what God has done in the past and what he has promised to do in the future. And so there's always a rehearsal of what he's done in the past. And in fact, the next presentation, I'm going to end with one of those Psalms. Um, I think it's Psalm 106. Um, and, and it's the same thing, that there's a complaint and it's a real thing because it's real difficult and God wants to hear us because he's our father. But, you know, I don't remember... I mean, my dad, I knew my dad loved me. He didn't say I love you a lot. But I knew that he loved me because when I was complaining about things, there was always kind of a response like, hey, yeah, welcome to being a man. Welcome. You're promoted. Good job. Right? This is how we deal with it. This is how we do. This is how we go. And you know what? I've got every confidence that you've, got big enough shoulders that you can handle this. It wasn't, there was not a, it wasn't a time of wallowing. So you've got to, if you're going to lament, make it a, you're gonna name what it is that you're, that is bugging you. And by naming it, you find a way then to look at, okay, so then what has God called me to do with the agency that he has given me to address this thing. And the rest belongs to him and recognize that he's going to use this for my good. So lament, yes, but the way the Bible laments, not the way we're kind of taught in our modern day, which is to like incessantly complain and whine. No whining. You mentioned about witnesses and helped us. Uh, what? How do you see us as uh, a Christian? Say, all those who are going through a tough time. I, I think of um, we are blessed in your blessing. Yeah. Well, it does, and you, hopefully, you know the people that are you know them well, right? Yeah, relationally. Uh, so my goal in all of that is to try to, when I view different people, I can say something to like Pastor Ramirez in a different way than I can say something to my son. Or a particular son that who's uh, a bit more emotional, right? Because all, we all have different temperaments. So I know I can say to Pastor Ramirez, I can say just very boldly and starkly, and I don't have to worry about hurting his feelings. Because uh, he does enough of that to me that I think I owe him. Uh, but, but I know the temperaments of others. And so how am I going to communicate that? Am I going to be as strong as I would with them? So like, that's the first thing. Like You have to know them well enough to be able to say, if I say, stop whining, is that going to be what they need to hear or how it needs to be said? So you, you have to think about how, what's the best way that they hear things? You have to take into account how they process stuff. So you can be a blessing to others, and that's a blessing, but that also takes work, right? So you're going to need to do some thinking about how am I going to say this? And that's difficult, but you should lean into it. And you should, 
and you should be ready to apologize if you go too far. But not apologize for caring in such a manner. Does that make sense? So I'm reticent to give you like a step-by-step plan, but I think what we're covering here is like, are they trying to avoid the difficult thing? Is it anything that they can actually control? Right? What has God promised about these things? And you want to move them in that direction. Right? And you have to be willing to listen. And it's not going to be a... There's, it's not a silver bullet. I mean, they're not silver bullets in our lives. We shouldn't expect it to be silver bullets in others. So it's constant. And so it shouldn't, talking about these things shouldn't be just saved for when they're already in trouble or they're already uh, lamenting about the place that they're in. We should constantly, like we're training, right? We should constantly be thinking about how God promotes us and he does this by giving us harder, better, more difficult tasks. And so we should be thinking about those things and talking about those things so that when it happens, we don't immediately think, God hates me, it's not fair, so on and so forth. So there, it's not just reactionary. Like there needs to be training along the way, which is what we do for a lot of our children when things don't go right. Like we're, we're teaching them like, yeah, things don't go right. You should learn to expect that. Um, and learn then how to pivot and maneuver when those things don't go right. One of the best skills that I learned, <laughs> one of the best skills that I learned in woodworking is fixing my, my mistakes and coming up with a solution that after I was like, oh, I totally bumbled that. How am I going to make this all work now? There is benefit in doing that and learning how to fix the mistake and that the game isn't over, right? It can still come out, you know, it's not 100% perfect, but it's 100% better than it was, right? There, there's, there's a lot of learning there. And so you're not putting a Band-Aid on, you know, a mortal wound. That's not what your goal is. Your goal is to get them to reframe all the things that they're enduring, right? And obviously some pains are, you know, I've been mainly focusing on the pain that we feel when we are confronted with something difficult, something that is unpleasant. There are some pains that are harder to heal that, you know, saying suck it up doesn't work. And it takes longer to embrace, like real pain of loss and things like that. That takes a little bit longer. Uh, but, but we shouldn't distract ourselves or become indifferent towards even those pains. And we should see what God is going to do with it. Right? We should be excited for that. I, mean, I tell my people all the time, like, you know, they start complaining to me about like, oh, the public schools are so bad or, you know, uh, the, you know, politics is just so awful. I just, you know, it's that time of year again. I'm just like, uh, you should be like rubbing your hands and licking your lips the white wildly coyote did and saying, I can't wait to see what God is going to do with this. Because he's going to do something great because he always does. And it's, again, it sounds corny but it really isn't when you read the Bible because St. Paul delighted in those things. We should delight in those things that for this time and for this moment, he has seen, he has seen, he has saw fit, seen fit. He put us here for this time and for this moment. There's work to do. So let's get after it, right? Did that answer your question? Okay, good. Good.